house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. with her what happened with you and Tommy I thought you were dead I just want to be able to come over and see the girls what's wrong stop it can't just nag his mom would rather sleep with Uncle Tommy than you Isabel you know what I did to get back to you you know what I did I'm my back you gonna shoot me shoot me shoot me Hello and welcome to the This at Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast whose sparkling personality haunts Peter Gallagher on every moonlit Nantucket night. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Joe Reed, and I am here as always with my co-host, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello, Joe. Very special day today. Very special. Chris... You know I consider you my brother, right? I mean, I think the term is sister, but... In podcasting, just go with me on this. Okay, I'm going with you. uh, But you also know that if I ever had a husband and then went off to war and came back and found out you had fallen in love with my husband, I would be a lot more chill about it than Tobey Maguire was in Brothers, the movie we are going to be talking about this week. Brothers! By that, do you mean like your eyeballs would yeah. at least remain yes. in their socket? I said, when, I, when we're at the dinner table, my eyeballs will remain on my side of the room. So yeah. that is, if nothing else, progress, I feel like. You'll have like really pronounced cheekbones, though. Okay, this is the other thing. My first notes at the beginning of this movie are, Tobey Maguire looks better than I've ever seen him in my entire life. And then by the end, I'm like, oh, right. Now he's like emaciated and like wounded and has, you know bones sticking out of his neck and whatnot whatever it's just like this is what i get for wanting hot sexy toby Maguire. i think I mean, it was mostly the haircut i think the haircut really worked on him for whatever reason i feel like the haircut just made him look shorter i don't like the haircut <laughs> man we're about to be some savages on this episode sorry um yeah yeah, taking a trip back to 2009 which should be fun we are talking about the wartime... american remake What's that? Yes, that's true. The da- the remake of the Danish film Brodre. I'm just going to say I'm going to say it like a California surfer and just say we're remaking the Susanna Beer movie Brodre. <laughs> Brodre. Directed by Jim Sheridan, our favorite Irish good luck charm, or at least he was for a while there with Oscar movies. We'll get into that. In the 90s. The screenplay was adapted by David Benioff, who before he became a Game of Thrones bajillionaire was a sort of workaday filmmaker married to Amanda Peet, which honestly, nice work if you can get that even. Movie stars Tobey Maguire, as we said, Natalie Portman, Jake Gyllenhaal, a little bit of Carey Mulligan in there, Sam Shepard, Mayor Winningham. It's nice. It's a decent cast, actually. 
it's kind of like a shockingly really good cast for a movie this flat. Um, yes. And the, especially that this is the type of cast you think would elevate a movie. Yes. And they exactly. fully don't here. Premiered December 4th, 2009, right in the thick of Oscar season, 2009. And before we really get into it, Chris, I would like to know if you would like to take a chance on a 60-second plot summary. Uh, I mean, sure. Let's do this. All right. Get fire up the old phone. To it. All right. You got one minute. The plot of Brothers in 60 seconds. Go. Okay, so Tobey Maguire is about to serve his second term. I believe it's just the second term, but he's returning to Afghanistan in the late um, aughts. His name is uh, Sam Cahill. He is a military captain. Um, He is leaving behind his wife, Grace, played by Natalie Portman, and their two young daughters. He comes from a military family. His father is played by Sam Shepard, who um, is like kind of a mean drunk. He also has a brother who turned also into a much nicer drunk, his brother named Tommy, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, who, while Tobey Maguire is away, starts like taking care of the family because they think that uh, Sam, Tobey Maguire, is killed in action, but he's actually captured and like deals with horrible torture. Um, and it eventually comes back, but in the meantime, like Tommy seconds. and Grace get kind of like close, and you think there's going to be a romantic involvement, but it's not. They just kiss, and they're stoned, and it's like not a big deal, but like it's kind of still awkward. And then Sam like returns and deals with PTSD. Not bad. Sorry, I forgot to give you a thirty second warning, but hey, that's job. okay. I did not get in Mayor Winningham, nor did I get in Carrie Mulligan, because the movie kind of forgets about, like, these wonderful actresses, but I would also like to just, like, say their name as much as possible. Well, Carrie gets, like, a scene and a half, right? So like... Okay, Carrie gets a scene and a half, and then, like, three random reaction shots peppered yes. throughout the movie? Well, she Carrie, wasn't... Like... She wasn't quite Carrie Mulligan when she filmed this movie. This was the same no. year as an education, but yeah, it was but... filmed certainly before she became famous for it so right we'll give the movie a little bit a little bit of a pass there i think in talking about why brothers had oscar buzz i want to stress that like this movie looked really good on paper like Mm -hmm. really really good like for those anybody who did year ahead of time oscar predictions this was on your list almost certainly because it was an adaptation of a movie that had gotten great reviews and that had gotten awards attention for The Devil's Connie Advocate Nielsen. and other things. Connie Nielsen. Right. So Connie Nielsen was in the Natalie Portman role in the Danish film. And and the film had won something at, I want to say, Sundance. And it was it just got a, a lot of European film awards for various different like yes. major film awards in Europe. Yeah, it was just a really, really successful European film. It was from 2004, and that it would be directed by Jim Sheridan. This is the thing I mentioned a little bit about, like, Jim Sheridan being an Oscar good luck charm, but I want to sort of, like, stress that, like, I'll go through his filmography because his very first film that he ever directed is My Left Foot, which wins Daniel Day-Lewis, his very first Oscar, wins an Oscar for Brenda Fricker, is was a Best Picture nominee? Remind me. Yes. Yes. So there's that. His second movie is The Field, which isn't a Best Picture nominee, but gets a Best Actor nomination for Richard Harris. Then his third movie is In the Name of the Father, which is another Best Picture nominee, gets nominations for Daniel Day-Lewis, Emma Thompson, Pete Postlethwaite. Then his fourth movie is The Boxer, which is the failure among them. But it's like the We got to talk about that movie at some point. It, I've never seen it. 
Have you seen it? No. Okay, neither have I. But it's the exception that proves the rule for both Jim Sheridan and Daniel Day-Lewis. It's like one of the very rare Daniel Day-Lewis performances that doesn't get him an Oscar nomination, but he's still like Golden Globe nominated, and I want to say maybe Emily Watson was as well. Hold on. <sighs> let me let me click. I know at the very least <clears throat> Daniel Day-Lewis gets a Globe nomination. I think in terms of Jim Sheridan being like what had like such advanced confidence in people who Oscar watched that far in advance, as you mentioned, was like this is post his In America comeback. Well, I was going to say In America so, was a big Oscar story that year, I, I and was, had it been an expanded, like had it come around in the time when we expanded to the ten or the like seven to nine, uh, that definitely would have been a Best Picture nominee. I was getting there. Um, I don't I want was helping to you know. while you were looking up the boxer. Yeah, but then people will think I forgot about In America, and I fucking love In America. I do not. Wow. Oh, we're going to fight on that. The boxer, by the way, was not nominated for Emily Watson, but did get Best picture, Motion Picture Drama and Best Director nominations at the Globes. So, like, the boxer was at least in the conversation. And then, yes, so In America, which was sort of... As the nomination day approached, we had sort of thought that In America had come and gone. And it was small, and it sort of like it didn't get much, and maybe it'll get a nomination for the screenplay because it was Jim Sheridan and his daughters, both of his daughters, Naomi Sheridan and Kirsten Sheridan. And it was this sort of like fun little story. And then all of a sudden, Oscar nomination day comes. And not only does it get the screenplay nomination, but, like, surprise, surprise, Jaiman Hansu gets nominated for supporting actor after showing up in basically none of the precursors. And then Samantha Morton, who had been, like, is she lead? Is she supporting? Who knows? We're, you know, whatever, shows up as Best Actress, as the Best Actress nominee for In America. I fucking love In America. It makes me cry every time I see it. I think it's lovely. Defend yourself as to why you don't like it. Um, I just think it's a sledgehammer. Um, I mean, and that's only having seen it once when it was in the theater. Maybe I would feel differently as an adult. But, like, I remember just being like, this movie just kind of viciously wants me to cry. Yeah. Um, in a way that I don't. Are you too good to cry? I'm not. Res- <laughs> Clearly, I am not too good to cry as somebody who wept their way through Mamma Mia. Here we go again. <laughs> um, I'm clearly not too good to cry. But, like, I just. Yeah, that's the word I used at the time. I would use it now. I think that movie is a sledgehammer. It is all. It also has a fucking gorgeous poster, which is one of my favorite posters, which is the station Does wagon with the family parked underneath the Brooklyn Bridge, and the underneath of the Brooklyn Bridge has the American flag. I don't. I find it very beautiful. I love it. But so, Jim Sheridan through that movie. Then so that's one, two, three, four, five movies, right? And that's his first five. So it's, we talk about these people who sort of have an aura about them, which is, mm-hmm. I think Stephen Daldry had this for a while, which is just like, oh, he can't miss. Like, Stephen Daldry's first yeah. four movies all end up either Best Picture nominated or Best Director nominated, if not both. And you sort of get the start to get the sense that, like, oh, like, the Oscars just love this guy, and they will always love this guy, and it will sort of... You know in your head it can't go on forever, but it's like you're at the craps table, right? And it's just like, I don't want to step away while this streak is going. So, but for Jim Sheridan, his next movie after In America is Get Rich or Die Tryin', which is the 50 Cent movie, which I don't know what that was. I don't know what... I feel like there was, like, before people actually saw that movie, there was a little bit of, Of like, strong-arming of 
think of like people being like, well, maybe the Fifty Cent movie because it was also post Eight Mile. It was post Eight Mile, and you and, with like uh, Curtis Hansen, and then people were also like, but it is Jim Sheridan. Uh, people said that, and also I think the unlikeliness of it sort of worked against it. But then all all of a sudden you'd be like, huh, what if? What a good story would this make if? You know, all of a sudden, the 50 Cent movie is good, and 50 Cent is all of a sudden a contender in, like, best actor. It wasn't, by all, you know, indications. I never saw it. And I should. I should see Get Richard, I try, and just to, like, see it. Although nobody even mentions it now in, like, a what an odd thing to have happened. You should see it just to see what happened. Like, no, it A Jim really... Sheridan 50 Cent movie. Yeah. And then so it's another four years after that. Get Richard I Tried was three years after In America. Two years actually after In America came out, because In America came out in America huh, in 2003. Get Richard I Tried well was done. 05. And then it's another four years before Brothers. But the, the, the advanced word on Brothers, you could very easily convince yourself, like, oh, this is Jim Sheridan back in sort of kitchen sink drama mode, and this is great male suffering right one you know one woman trying to hold it together through tears and and whatever infidelity and it just seems like such a great such great oscar material and it's central trio of natalie portman jake gyllenhaal toby mcguire at the time it seemed like oh it's their moment for all three of them at the same time It's so shocking to me how it's like these are three performers that like we like would consider them on like the same plate almost. Uh, Maybe not Tobey Maguire now because he's kind of gone away. But like at the time, definitely. And it's so weird to me that this is the only time that the three of them in any convergence have worked together. Well, Maguire and Gyllenhaal had that long career of sort of twinning each other. Mm-hmm. And they they sort of almost crossed streams at Spider-Man 2, where Tobey Maguire almost uh, got recast in Spider-Man 2 with Jake Gyllenhaal. And that, like, that was one of the great sort of, like, you know, mirror universe almost happened but didn't. But, like, in the early 2000s, when Gyllenhaal was getting cast in The Good Girl and Lovely and Amazing and Donnie Darko as this sort of, like, appealing yet odd with a weird little streak of like maybe there's something wrong with him maybe Uh, he could kill you right late high school just out of high school sort of like guy while he's doing that that's when toby Maguire is in the ice storm that's when he's in well the ice storm was a little bit before uh, but only by a couple years spider-man uh wonder boys well spider-man's sort of different because spider-man that's a different sort of like milieu for him but i'm thinking of like toby Maguire as as an awkward sort of guy. Aimless, you know. Pleasantville. Yeah. But then, like, Wonder Boy sort of, like, tweaks that a little bit, where it's just, like, maybe that's his sort of Gyllenhaal role, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's, like, what if Tommy Maguire was maybe a sociopath and a little bit gay? And, like, tweaks that, you know, dial a little bit. And I just feel like their careers, for a while, were going... Along the same line, and then Jake Gyllenhaal gets Brokeback Mountain and Jarhead in the same year, which I think should not be underestimated in terms of the both of them together, because mm-hmm. Brokeback Mountain does everything for his career that we remember, but like Jarhead got him fucking jacked and made him so fucking sexy for 
so much of the population. And I think I that think was that like, like shots in that movie invented the GIF. Yeah, him for the dancing internet. with the goddamn Santa hat on his on his wiener. Like, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it was a very important movie. Thank you, Sam Mendes. You've done a service for everybody. But I think, and then like I, I sort of imagine Toby looking at Jake's 2005 and being like, "That is land to which I cannot follow." You know what I mean? Like, I can't for whatever reason. What did Toby do in 2005? Hold on, let me look this up. Because he had done Spider-Man 2 in 2004. He had, like, held on to Spider-Man 2. What was the hang-up there? Was there another movie that he was flirting with? Was it Seabiscuit that was a problem? What was the deal? No, he had he injured his back in the original mm, Spider-Man, apparently, and used that as leverage for more money, so the story goes, right. um, to the point where they make fun of it in Spider-Man 2. Oh, interesting. That's very interesting. The thing about Tobey Maguire, and I'm sure everybody here has like heard about it a little bit, is like the reputation on Tobey Maguire is that he's an asshole. Like that's sort of the reputation he has pussy posse from being in the pussy posse with DiCaprio to all of his sort of Hollywood adventures. Famously, the um, Michael Sarah character in Molly's Game is a very you know, thin gloss on Tobey Maguire in real life. That was sort of the, uh, they didn't, she didn't use his name in her book, but that's who it's supposed to be. So there's a lot of sort of Tobey Maguire being his own worst enemy during this stage of his career where he's as famous and as allegedly sort of powerful as he's always been. It's interesting if you look at, since he made since Spider-Man in 02, the only movies he made, the only features were the three Spider-Man movies, then Seabiscuit in there, The Good German in there, and that's it. Those are the only movies he made within that span of doing Spider-Man. So it's very interesting to imagine what was going and on And I mean, there. post this movie, Brothers, really, you have that movie, The Details, which like took forever to actually be released right and you have great gatsby pawn sacrifice being really the only the leads he has a cameo in labor day a movie we should talk about yeah and that not really funny miniseries the spoils of babylon right that's That's like a funny five minute sketch stretched out to like five hours yes that's absolutely what it was and the other thing is, Pawn Sacrifice and The Good German are, again, two movies where he is playing this sort of, um, there's, it's not quite like, uh. There's antisocial behavior. Yeah, antisocial is the word I'm looking for. I was going to say, it's not quite Asperger's-y, but it's sort of just like, what is your deal? Are you dangerous or just contemptuous of people? And he's sort of like, you know, apart from all the other characters and, that's just sort of became a Tobey Maguire thing, and I think Brothers really kind of latches onto that in the second half. Yeah. So his what's interesting was is... sort of reaching a last gasp at this, right? I mean, like, I wonder how much he like went away by his own volition. Yeah. Because like y- you kind of just don't like completely fade away like this, right? Unless it's a choice. But it's just very interesting to watch where, like, at that point, Gyllenhaal in 2000, so after this, after he doesn't get Spider-Man, Gyllenhaal's career just fully takes flight where it's like, Day After Tomorrow, huge hit. Brokeback Mountain, obviously. He's in Proof, which, like, sort of, 
a little bit harkens back to that older sort of Moonlight Mile era of his career. But then yeah. it's Jarhead, Zodiac, Rendition doesn't work, Brothers doesn't work, Prince of Persia doesn't work, Love and Other Drugs doesn't work. But then it's like, okay, End of Watch, Prisoners, Enemy, then Nightcrawler happens. And I feel like Nightcrawler, it takes another leap where it's just like, oh, no, everybody fucking loves Jake Gyllenhaal. And it like, <laughs> feels like he's like an Oscar-worthy director uh, actor now. And... I think now he's in this very sort of, you know, uh, flush stage of his career. Yeah. Even he can even make a movie like Demolition, and everybody's like, "Ah, it's fine." And he can make a Nocturnal Animals, and people are like, "We won't even talk about your part of that movie." And <laughs> but like that, he can be in like Okja, and people really. I mean, a lot of people really can't stand him in that movie. I love him in that movie. I think he's. I do too. Exactly the kind of over the top he needs to be. And then, like, people loved him in Stronger. People love the Sisters Brothers. I'm super looking forward to Velvet Buzzsaw, even though I'm not a very big fan of Nightcrawler, but this is the reteaming of Dan Gilroy and Jake Gyllenhaal and Rene Russo. This is the movie that's premiering at uh, Sundance about the... Could have already premiered. I don't know the Sundance schedule. Oh, okay. right. When this, when this episode comes out, it might have already. Every single element of Velvet Buzzsaw, I swear, was just thrown into a Cuisinart of nonsense. Like, <laughs> go look up those character names on IMDb. I I can't say I'm excited for this movie, but I'm fascinated. That's the thing. I think it's more that it's it's fascinating. But it's besides Gyllenhaal and Rene Russo, Tony Collette's in this movie, Billy Magnuson, John Malkovich, David Diggs, Tom Sturridge. Like, I'm... I am utterly fully fascinated to see this movie. The character gonna... names are like if Annie Prue took some LSD and then named some characters. And it's a Netflix movie, so it's going to be in your hot little hand by February 1st. So even if, you, if you've if you got the Sundance, you know, green-eyed monster for everybody seeing all these Sundance movies, you will be able to see this one February 1st on Netflix. So there's that. Fabulous. We should talk about Natalie Portman then. Yes, take take, take um, us because, away. Take us to Natalie. Lane. Okay, you know I love. So, I I also want to have a conversation about Closer and her Closer nomination. But this is post Closer. Natalie, you know I'm Portman. cracking my knuckles for a Closer conversation, right? Hell yeah. Okay, so this is the year before Black Swan happens. So and people forget because like the Natalie Sands are like somewhat unhinged people, and I love them. What are you talking? But about? this is. Uh, yeah you i'm talking about you um this is the year before black swan which like really kind of changed the narrative of who she was as a performer and even then we kind of had to ease into it like the amount of like people forget the amount of visceral dislike that was out there maybe more so in like straight male parts of the internet for Natalie Portman as a performer. And this is kind of during oh, then. I don't think we can blame the straight people for this one. I think there was a lot of gay viciousness towards Natalie. There was it, it, it was a thing. I mean, like, this is obviously post-Star Wars. She's still kind of... And she's not good in the Star Wars movies, but, like, how who could is? you be? Who is? Who, how, who among us yeah. is good in the Star Wars who prequels? Who or what? Who or what? <laughs> and, like, it took her a while to kind of shake that off to the point that when Closer happened, which was during the, like, the third prequel hadn't come out yet, like, right. people had such disdain for her in that movie that she's legitimately great in because they just wanted to hate her. Closer is a very interesting movie in that three of its four cast members had 
irrational pockets of hatred towards them for reasons that were not of their doing. I I think Clive I don't want to say the hope only here. person in that main cast who oh, people okay. are were like predisposed to liking. I that think time. that's legitimately one of Julia Roberts' best performances. And, like, still people want to reduce that performance to, like, she's trying to, like, work against her image in some way by saying these dirty words. And it's like, no, that's a great performance. She's like, really good. In it. I think all four of them are great. Nobody ever talks about the Jude Law performance because the only thing they talk about is Jude Law made six movies in 2004. And I've had that conversation right. before, and I'm not going to have it again. But I'm just saying, Jude Law, <laughs> he's also doing that thing that – um Orlando Bloom did in Troy. This is a very odd comparison where like everybody was like, Orlando Bloom is terrible in Troy. And I'm like, Orlando Bloom is playing a character who you're supposed to hate in Troy. And that's why you hate him. I love when Jude Law gets to play a pathetic person because he's brilliant at it and he has no ego about it. He's so good at it that people think it's a bad performance because they hated him. And it's like, no, you're supposed to hate him. He's doing his job. And honest to God, Natalie should have won the Oscar that year. Is my feeling. I mean, that She's so good. fucking scene, like, she and Clive Owen should have won. Um, yes. But even in the interim between her first and second nomination, like, she worked with some, like, major filmmakers and yeah. none of it paid off. Like, she did the Wong Kar Wai movie, My Blueberry Nights, Goya's Ghost, both movies we should talk about. Goya's yeah. Ghost was with Milos Forman. Um, not a, like, primo director, but, like, Oscar fodder type movie, The Other Bolain Girl. Right. So it's like, she, she wasn't, it was definitely like a downshift from those Star Wars movies and doing more low key things, but also like focusing on like who she might be as a performer. And I think some of these roles that aren't like great in not great material kind of also speaks to like the type of like not great way that women of a certain age yeah. are written. So um, do you feel like when Brothers happened in 2009 that we were ready? for the Natalie Portman Oscar train to sort of start up again? Or do you feel like it took something as sort of outre as Black Swan to sort of shake people out of their preconceptions about Natalie Portman? I think it took something like Black Swan for her and us to realize who she was as a performer. Because I don't think she's bad in Brothers, but I don't think she's extraordinary. And I think it's very much... I would say that about everyone. Well, sure. It's it's very much the, the performance you have in your head when you hear this story. And it doesn't really go beyond that. I think of the three of them, Gyllenhaal is the one I like the most and is the one I want to see in more context. I think we get a lot of stuff yeah. about Jake's character, Tommy. So the dynamic of this is that Toby, Toby goes off to war. Jake stays behind and he's the black sheep of the family. And like Sam Shepard is their dad is like this viciously mean to him. And that, that was a dynamic that I remember being very prevalent in the two thousands after nine 11, as these wars were starting this, mm-hmm. this attitude of, if you're not over there, there's this sort of, you know, implicit challenge Emasculization. to your masculinity, to your patriotism, yeah. to whatever, that felt very much ever-present in American life. And so what did you think of the of um, that Gyllenhaal scene? Because his whole thing is he had gone to prison for armed robbery. And at one point he and Portman are talking about how he had gone that day to the bank that he had robbed and had like a conversation with the teller 
that he robbed to sort of apologize and, and, you know, make restitution or whatever. And he's explaining this, like, very interesting conversation. And I'm just like, holy shit, did I want to see that scene? I want, like, cast that scene Uh with a really great character actress and give me, like, seven minutes of Gyllenhaal and this woman sort of, like, acting through whatever backstory it is. Like, I deeply wanted to see that. I don't know if you had that reaction as well. Um, I mean, yes, in that it's also, like, this movie is only only interested in the more, like, generic things that you already think about when you think about this story and not really creating, like, depth around it. Yeah. Um, Because it's interesting you bring up the, like, political dynamic of, like, what this war, how it related to our cultural and mass cultural culture and masculinity is that like i think that's one of the most interesting things about this movie that i don't see reflected in movies of the era um and there were a lot of them that dealt with the war in afghanistan the war in iraq um which is another interesting talking point for this movie because like you talked about the super early predicting and how this movie was on it. And it's like, it felt like all of those movies that dealt with that subject matter of that time were always early predicted. And then audiences never wanted to see those movies. Oh, absolutely. A lot of them largely weren't good. And it's so fascinating to talk about for this year, because this is the year of the hurt locker. Well, yes, that was the, I think when we jump into, and perhaps we're ready. I think we've exhausted all of our, except for one. Well, we'll talk about it later. Yes. Let's talk about why, why this Oscar buzz didn't do well. And I think the Hurt Locker is right up there because anything Uh that brothers might've thought it was doing well, kind of got showed up by the Hurt Locker, Uh including like all of these very intense scenes of Toby's character out in Afghanistan, him being a prisoner. They showed a lot of him sort of being tortured and having to ultimately the big, you know, crux of this movie is that he ends up killing his fellow soldier after being, you know, psychologically terrorized and deprived and all of these things. And I feel like the movie feels like it's being very brave and very sort of cutting edge by showing all of this stuff. And then you look at that versus the movie that does what the Hurt Locker does. And it's just like, oh, damn, like there's no comparison. Mm-hmm. And the Hurt Locker came out, well, it had, you know, it had played the festivals in 08 and famously, like, was an Independent Spirit Award nominee that year and that thing where the spirits allow a, a festival movie to submit early if it wants to. And so, in a very real way, it felt like the Hurt Locker had already been around for, like, a half a year before it even opened. And then it opens mm-hmm. in June? When did it open? June or May, around that Something window, around early then, summer. So by the time Brothers comes along in December, there's this small little drumbeat already, because now at this point we're getting into like the early Critics Awards, and there's this drumbeat of like maybe the critics can help push a little movie like The Hurt Locker to some sort of, I think it was like where that early Moonlight drumbeat was, was like, this won't ever win Best Picture, but maybe we can get it nominated. Maybe if we keep like mm-hmm. talking it up and making sure that people don't forget what a good movie this is, that we can get it to some nominations. And The Hurt Locker was definitely in the middle of that push when Brothers comes out. So there's no way that Brothers is going to be in any way 
uh, impressive when everybody's talking about the Hurt Locker all this time. Definitely. And I think there was also a certain... um, This is at the point where, like, those movies kind of started going away and, like, people were just kind of sick of these movies if they weren't going to do so well. So when you do have the one that is doing really well... Yeah. Right next to it, like, I don't know. And it was doing really well with, like, a star who was not as established as... Hall and Toby were like, I, you know, some people knew who Jeremy Renner was at this point. Some people, people had seen, you know, Dahmer or whatever, or he had been in Assassination of Jesse James a couple years before that. But really, he was mostly an un- uh, unknown indie actor. So it was like, oh, The Hurt Locker can do all of this without having to, you know, pack its movie with the three hottest stars of its era. It's like, okay, well, there we go. Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, if we're at the point of talking about how Brothers, like, failed to materialize this, like, I think a lot of the chips for Brothers were placed in, like, Tobey Maguire's basket. Yeah. And I think that is exactly the wrong way to go for this movie, because I think I think almost everybody is miscast in this movie, except for, like, Sam Shepard. <laughs> and... Well, initially, Jake and Toby were going for the opposite roles. And yes. they they ended up, you know, shaking out the other way. I think Jake would have been very interesting in the role of what is his name, Sam? Mm-hmm. Um, I think Jake would have been very interesting in the role of Sam. I don't know if I see Toby in the role of Tommy as easily. I think the one thing I will say about it had they played the opposite roles is they've both already done that performance before. Or maybe it's in hindsight they would have done that performance later. Because, and it just wouldn't have been a. It wouldn't be interesting. Not to say that the result is all that interesting to me, but that wouldn't have been interesting to me either. No, but where I think else... everybody's pretty miscast in this movie. Yeah, I mean, so wait, so who's? Let's fantasy cast this maybe a little bit better. Who at this time would have been really interesting in Tobey Maguire's role? Yeah, Ruffalo. Oh, and he's not too old at this point. I guess not. Yeah. I wouldn't think so, no. Ruffalo's I mean, maybe that's one. the thing. Is that, like It feels a little weird that like either Tobey Maguire or Jake Gyllenhaal would play either's older brother. Yeah. Um, I just think I Gyllenhaal, I think Gyllenhaal sells the uh, sort of black sheepness of Tommy decently well. I don't think he and Portman... It's not that I don't think they have chemistry, but like there's nothing about their chemistry that makes me want to see them get together. Which is maybe to the benefit of the movie because like that's one of the things I do appreciate that it's like their like connection together is a little awkward and yeah. not fully formed and it's more so out of like necessity and vulnerability for each other in the moment and it's not necessarily a thing. Yeah. That like ever was going to be, but yeah, I don't know. She definitely has more chemistry with him than she has with Tobey Maguire. Well, that is true. I don't think Tobey Maguire is great at the chemistry in general, which is funny because he's the one who's had, like, one of the top 50 most iconic screen kisses of all time under his belt with the... Uh... Where you can't even see his face, though. That is true. That is very true. Wait, talk to me very briefly about um, the daughter, the older daughter. 
Isabel. The older daughter who is like supposed to be seven, but is maybe making the character actress choices of like a 35-year-old woman. So this is Bailey Madison. This performance is like incredibly precocious. I'm not saying she's bad. It's just like... She might be bad. I don't know. This is an actress who has showed up recently in... uh, Well, she was in... Trophy Wife, that ABC sitcom Trophy Wife, where she played Marsha Gay Harden's daughter, making her the rare child actress to have played the daughter of Oscar winners twice, which is pretty cool. And then she was in that show The Fosters on ABC Family, playing the sort of half-sister of one of the main characters who, like, looks incredibly alike. Like, they looked incredibly like It was very good casting. But she, again, played a very similar role as this, was just, just, like way too dramatic a character for her for her age age bracket and then recently she was in the strangers pray at night she was the main girl in the strangers pray at night and i thought she was actually really good in that but her role in this reminded me of did you ever watch nurse jackie i did not so the one older daughter in nurse jackie had a similar thing where it's just like i think she was going through like actual like depression as like a grade school or whatever and her younger sister was the more easily cute and adorable one. And it's interesting that this movie sort of like addresses that kind of head on, but doesn't really have the the time or inclination to follow through with it. So we just sort of get it as like a little character beat that like mm-hmm. she feels inferior to her other sister, but we it's never really paid off except for in this dinner scene that becomes the sort of, the pre-emotional climax before the real climax of him with the gun in the in the in the driveway or whatever breaking the kitchen well but then he's out with the cops out on the front lawn yeah which is like you know is somebody gonna get shot and boy watching that thing in the in the after after wake of the black lives matter is upsetting because it's it's like this man was just like it's real eye-opening because it's like it's not necessarily untrue. Like this is this probably is how it would play out, but like you really it really is in the front of your mind as like there's no way that this would have played out, you know, in mm-hmm. any way similar if if he was not a white guy. Anyway, mm-hmm. so um but in in um Nurse Jackie, that girl who played the sort of older sister in that who was sort of like it almost became kind of a joke how like sort of sad sacky she was. And so that dinner scene in Brothers where she ultimately is just like, Mom has sex with Uncle Tommy a lot. Couldn't you just stay dead? Isabel. You're just mad because Mom would rather sleep with Uncle Tommy than you. Isabel. Why would you say that? Mom and Uncle Tommy have sex all the time. Enough. All the time. I was like, who, who is this child that knows what sex is, let alone like the phrase and like how to use that against her father? It plays so comedically, to me at least. Because so also, this this sweet little girl, too, like, I don't want to, like, dump on this girl, but, like, the faces she makes are so over the top. Like, this is a girl who, like, when you ask her, like, did you brush your teeth? And she'll be like, yes, I did. And she looks like she wants to, like, burst into tears at all times. She is yeah. on the verge of a breakdown at every moment in this movie, which, again, I do think is probably intentional. And I think because this movie really wants you to get the, like, the toll that this kind of thing takes on everybody in the family. But it's like so ham fisted. Yeah. Oh, like, I don't know. No, I mean, go ahead because I, I, I do agree. I mean, like, it's weird because, like, when the movie does actually, like, turn on any emotional fireworks, because I feel like this movie's pretty much, like, 
just a general malaise for the whole time until like it actually like tries to make you feel something and then it's just like feel all of it and like yeah. just throws everything at the wall of you like even the way that like toby Maguire's breakdown in the kitchen is shot it's like look at him destroy all of these things can i also but say not... were i were i writing about film full-time at this point where i this is when i was still working at uh abc but were i writing about film in this year I would have found a way to write something about the kitchen in Brothers as compared to the kitchen, and it's complicated. Okay, we do have to talk about this kitchen because this kitchen is such a major talking point. Like, Tommy completely redoes Natalie Portman Grace's um, kitchen, which, like, is fully necessary because the stove <laughs> is just, like, an island just of hanging itself. out like, in the middle of the, the room. The oven is just chilling in the middle of the room so that, like, maybe there could be some interesting staging. Just so the and listeners he... are aware, uh, yesterday I'm, I'm watching this movie on Amazon Prime and I get the text from Chris and we find out that we're at, like, the exact same point in the movie. And so we're going through and all of a sudden... I just get a text from Chris that says in full caps in full caps. Why is that stove not connected to the wall? It was like, why is it in the middle of the room? It's just freestanding. It's just a freestanding stove. And clearly Tommy had the same point of view as we did because then he like fixes up her kitchen and then it's a very realistic kitchen reno. I will say like it is the kind of kitchen renovation you get when you are at that sort of economic level. I think that was middle really America well fancy. Yeah. Yes. Where it's like, it's light blue. It's so light blues. It's, nice. it's light blues and white. It's exactly it. That's exactly it. Uh, <laughs> no, my fair, my family sense. had a light blue and white kitchen at, at some stage. I'm pretty sure my mom like painted ours like <laughs> light blue and white. Um, and then, but at the end after like the, Isabel has had this whole outburst of mom and uncle Tommy have been having sex all the time. <laughs> um, then uh, Sam like has his breakdown because he's already been having a hard time back home. And like in a weird way, like Isabel has been goading him to like have this breakdown, like dealing with like his, like fucking around with his sensory stuff, like with balloons. And so he has this breakdown and he smashes the kitchen Ugh. and it's fully like toby Maguire just going feral Ugh. and that it's like kitchen. he's just like unhinged but it's not it's like watching a performer who's not in control of what they're doing unfortunately and did you ever just... did you ever see um empire records the the uh, are you kidding me of course i've seen empire okay records. so there's the point in empire records where this is like just before renee zellweger hits big and this is like part of Liv Tyler's sort of big moment in pop culture, her sort of, you know, ascendancy, right? But nobody really knew who Renee Zellweger was at this time. So there's this big emotional thing where, like, Zellweger and Liv Tyler had this big falling out, and Zellweger first has her, like, big emotional thing where she, like, turns on Liv Tyler and, and sort of yells at her, and it's this big and emotional, and she's crying and whatever, but she's, like good like she's just like oh and you sort of get the sense that like huh like that's a you know that's an actress who can really do some stuff i could study all night if i was chowing down speed too you know that could or what for your perfect little face and your perfect body Shut and up. your perfect family and your perfect school stop and it. your perfect Gina, stop it. perfect future stop it stop it come on come on come on come on i'm stopping it's always about 
and then immediately following it, Liv Tyler has her breakdown scene, and it's just like screaming and throwing things, and there is no modulation to it at all. It's gonna be fine. Really. No, it's not gonna be fine! Nothing's ever fine! And it's utterly unhinged and uninteresting to me because it's just like yeah. she's just screaming and throwing things around. And that's sort of what Toby's scene at the end of Brothers reminded me of. Which, like, is because you mentioned that you're into Jake Gyllenhaal in this movie. It's like he comes in and, like, tries to calm him down. And, like, everything that Jake Gyllenhaal is doing in the moment feels real and feels like an acting choice that isn't just I'm going to, like lose my voice screaming yeah because like it that's one of the unfortunate things i think about and like about toby Maguire being miscast in this movie i don't like expect him as a performer to like have much insight into this very serious like issue of post-traumatic post-traumatic stress and like what our culture did to like not assist that in these men right um and i don't expect him to be able to like get at that interestingly and it's like it kind of hurts the movie and like that discussion when you just have someone who's screaming yeah there's a scene earlier in the movie where he and sam shepherd have this moment where sam shepherd playing his dad um can see that there's something they can all see that there's something off with him with sam when he comes back um and the father kind of takes a moment at some point and is more emotionally honest than he is at any point in the movie where he talks about how when he came back, he was frustrated that his wife, he couldn't talk to his wife about it. And he got frustrated and took that frustration out on his kids. And he sort of admits that like he treated, you know, Tommy unfairly. He doesn't say this to Tommy. He says this to Sam. And, but he kind of extends an offer to talk about things with Sam. If Sam can't talk about them with, with grace, with Natalie Portman. And, that's a, you know, it's an interesting scene in that it's the most we ever get out of the Sam Shepard character, but it's also can feel a little rote. It can feel a little bit like this is the thing we're going to say now so that we can be responsible about, mm-hmm. so that then it maybe writes us a little bit of a permission slip to get very melodramatic towards the end. Yeah. There's a lot of, I think especially when you're dealing with material like this, you have to meet it authentically um, to serve the topic that you are discussing. And this movie, I just really don't think does. It feels like a very inauthentic movie to me. Speaking of what a well-cast movie this is, though, where you mentioned before that like we got Mayor Winningham, Oscar nominee, wonderful actress, doesn't really get a ton to do. Clifton Collins Jr. is in this movie for like a scene and a half playing a soldier friend of sam's we get um the guy who plays the major sort of villain out in afghanistan the guy with the glasses Mm -hmm. who was in american gods this year remember how or last year remember there was the whole thing about the gay sex scene in american gods yes he was one of the two of them so props to that guy for that um, and then thank you for all you have done to our culture. <laughs> and then there's Carrie Mulligan, who we mentioned is in like a scene and a half playing the ultimately the widow of the private that Sam has to is sort of compelled to murder out in Afghanistan. That guy, by the way, Patrick Fluger is mm-hmm. 
sort of somebody you uh, you might see sort of bop up and around, but I knew him at the time. He was on a TV show called The 4400 on USA, which is one of those mm-hmm. strangely many shows that take the premise of like, what if all of these people who we thought were abducted by aliens suddenly returned all at once? And this one, this TV show particularly, was like, what if they returned with X-Men powers? You know, where they like each have their own little like individualized ability. Also on that show, Mahershala Ali, interestingly. Oh, I was about the- to do one of my silent... K to this show but you know it was for, it was one of those odd before like peak tv kind of happened where you could find an odd little show on cable and be like huh i might be the only person who knows about the show but like my sister and i would watch it all the time but yeah mahershala ali that was the first thing i ever saw him on interesting but you really like carrie mulligan in this movie for her season scene in it. i like carrie mulligan and all of it and just about everything i would say maybe the best performance in this movie is carrie mulligan in her scene and a half um, this this episode, to... by the way, our the, our podcast episode drops on the day that Oscar nominations have been announced. Chris, do you feel like having uh, a word with people over the fact that Carrie Mulligan almost certainly was not nominated for Wildlife? I mean, that this is the torture of this past Oscar year. I mean, there's a lot of torture. Like, we don't have to get into all of it because there's a lot of, like, bad shit happening. Um, see, I can't get on people's case about Carrie Mulligan because I left her off my own ballot and I'm mad at myself for it. Who are um, your five? Who are your actresses? My five? Yeah. Um, let me pull that up. I Carrie can't Mulligan. tell you because Carrie mine Mulligan will be on the those... Blankies episode of Blank Check. So I'm going to keep mine. Which will still be out there somewhere. Okay, so Carrie Mulligan is one of like maybe five to seven people that I'm like, they could have easily been my winner as didn't make my ballot yeah so caveat being that um there'll be some other probably obvious names um tony collette in hereditary olivia coleman for the favorite viola davis for widows katherine hahn for private life and melissa mccarthy for can you ever forgive me that's a pretty bulletproof list i mean you know um i would also say because like of all the dust up of like emma stone like being in supporting which i do think is silly and i think even just as silly as all the like outrage about like people being in the wrong category this year yes um like just to say like how crazy i think this year is like stacked more than normal with amazing leading actresses Mm -hmm. i think emma stone in the favorite is her best performance ever and she's not close to my ballot. Dang. I mean... That's what this year is. So, just a couple other stray miscellaneous about this movie. Was I the only one who, in the early scenes with Portman and, and Toby sort of being a flirty, sexy, fun married couple, kept thinking of Annihilation and how much better those scenes were in Annihilation? Oh, my goodness. So, like... I didn't even think of that until I saw the outline that you sent me for this. Uh And, like, that is very interesting and a strange adjacency. But, yes, like, it is kind of... I wouldn't have necessarily thought about Annihilation that way because I have, like, my own certain, like, take on it that almost has nothing to do with those elements of the movie, even as they present them. But since you bring it up, like, those few, like, wordless scenes almost in Annihilation that deal with, like, spouse at home while the other is away at war handle, like, what the emotional ethos of that is 
so much better than the entirety of Brothers does. I fully admit that I think about those scenes in Annihilation probably more than anybody else does, but I just remember watching it for the first time, and it's even before she's alone at home. It's when they're she's flashing back to them at home together when they're just Mm -hmm. sort of being like flirty fun in bed together or whatever. And it's like the chemistry between them is so good, but it's also, I think it's so indicative of the kind of star power that Natalie has sort of stepped into that she didn't have back then in brothers were like, she just really fully commands the screen in annihilation. And it's even in those sort of small scenes and you're just like, wow, I am watching like an A-list movie star do her thing where she's like fully in charge of her charisma, her chemistry with her co-star, her character story, everything. And I just, I mean, that sells me on Annihilation right away, but it's it's in comparison to what was going on in Brothers. I'm just like, you know, way to come a long way, honestly. And like at this point in Natalie's career in 2009, she had already come a long way from, you know, her st- child star days. We mentioned this when we talked about Anywhere But Here. But, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I, I gush. I am, honestly, I am one of those weird Natalie Portman stands. But I genuinely feel like watching her get better than she needed to be at this point in her career is so gratifying and, and fun to watch. I mean, uh, 1,000%. I feel like we talk a lot, oddly, about Natalie Portman, or at least I have, and not done so very eloquently on this podcast, so I will I will kind of just leave it with what you've said, but I am in full agreement. Uh, also about Brothers, we look at the odd little awards it did win. We didn't mention, really, Tobey Maguire was nominated for a Golden Globe for this performance which is very it's always going to stand out in my mind as very strange he got nominated at the globes ahead of jeremy renner if you remember the globes nominated like Mm -hmm. a a hurt locker for picture and director and screenplay but didn't give it i don't think it even won screenplay no up in the air had won screenplay and then avatar wins for picture and director this is avida 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 but tommy mcguire is up there with the other four ultimate Oscar nominees that year, which were Jeff Bridges and Crazy Heart, Morgan Freeman and Invictus, we all remember so vividly, the Morgan Freeman and Invictus year. Oh my god. Colin Firth in A Single Man, George Clooney and Up in the Air, and then it would ultimately be Jeremy Renner in The Hurt Locker, which I think in retrospect, I remembered as being a much stronger nomination, not in terms of its quality, but in terms of its chances to get nominated. I had forgotten that it was left out of that he was left out of the Globes. But it's mm-hmm. so strange to see Toby in here. The other element that uh, Brothers got a nomination for at the Globes that year was the U2 song, which... Because this is the era of every, like, milk toast drama having a U2 song I was going to say, who's going to make the documentary about the era where U2 tried very, very hard to win an Academy Award? Oh, my God. I mean, like, I'd forgotten that U2 had a song in this movie. Yes, spoiler alert, I watched this movie again because I had already seen it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, oh, yeah. I'd already seen it at the time, for sure. When that screen credit came up, which, like, normally, like, song credits on opening credits are a little bit more, like, specific than this. But it was just, like, in quotes, winter performed by U2. That's all that the credit says. And I was like, of fucking course this movie has a U2 original song in it. So the Golden Globes I think have nominated U2. Hold on, let me look now. Bono has been nominated 
2002, they won for The Hands That Built America for Gangs of New York, which I think ultimately is nominated for the Oscar but does not win. Yes. And then, oh, God, they won again. I forgot that. They won in 2013. Didn't they win for the Mandela song? Yes, for the Mandela Long Walk to Freedom song, Ordinary Love. So they've won two Golden Globes. That one did not get nominated for an Oscar, I don't think. Yes, it did. Did it really? Jesus Christ. And then, oh, it's interesting that they had been nominated for Far Away So Close, which I guess is a concert film? No, it's a Vim Vendors film. Weird. (laughs) Yes. So their song, Stay Far Away So Close, was nominated in 1993 for the Golden Globe for a Vim Vendors film, which was also called Far Away So Close, Lost to the Streets of Philadelphia, this is wild. Man, the Golden Globes fucking love you, too. They nominated Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me from Batman Forever, which Hell lost yeah. to Colors of the Wind. Wild, you guys. That Batman Forever song is the best U2 song nominated for a Globe. Because, like, yes. imagine just all of the, like, shitty original songs from U2 placed on, like, their own album. Like, imagine if those songs were an album. It would be the, like the earth's crust the like lowest point of the U- of u2's career all of those songs are terrible oh for sure okay so except for the batman forever song i can get into it the fact that the batman franchise has produced zero best original song nominees is kind of a bummer because it a sucks man kiss from a rose fully deserved to be a nominee that year batman forever is what year 90 batman forever it's 95 yeah. 95. Okay, so the Academy Award nominations in 1995 are Colors of the Wind, which wins. Dead Man Walking. This is the Oscar nominations. Dead Man Walking, which, like, the Bruce Springsteen song, fine. Okay. Um, You've Got a Friend in Me from Toy Story, which is, like, the Randy Newman that I will allow. Yeah. That is fine. I still think of Toy Story when I think of You Got a Friend in Me. Like, that's fine. I wrote about all of Randy Newman's Oscar nominations. There are some good songs in there. You hold your tongue. Okay. I only think of, like, the bad, the one that won that's so forgettable. Or the two uh, that won? I don't know. He had a yeah, Toy Story 3 song that was, like, fully... Yeah, We Belong Together. Yeah, who cares? Um, yeah. There's, a, there's a song from Sabrina that year that I can't remember who sang it, but it might have been Sting. That is, again, forgettable. But then, 1995 nominates one of the worst songs that have ever been written. And it really, really bugs me that it's an Oscar nomination. Can you guess what I'm talking about? Just give it, it to me. It's Have You Ever Really Loved a Woman from Don Juan DeMarco. Oh, yes. You are telling me that you are going to nominate that song over Kiss from over a Rose. Over Kiss from a Rose. Fuck you. The, okay, so some of these you get into weird eligibility things. Of course you do. That, and that's like, the problem with the, the category in and of itself is that they're too stringent when it comes to eligibility. I, this is the category that everybody, like, aside from the shorts, hates and, like, once removed. And I am, like, the, like, I try to be, like, the major advocate for it being there. But I do think they need to lighten rules because, like, I think it's, like, yes. stupid that Come What May doesn't have of a nomination, for example. Even though it was written for another movie, there's examples where it's, like, this song was written before the movie but not specifically for the movie that it's, like, but it's part of the identity of what we think these movies are. I'd That's have nominated Kiss from a Rose. I'd have nominated Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. And I probably would have nominated um, The End is the Beginning is the End from the Smashing Pumpkins, even though I guarantee <gasps> you that was not you written know, for Batman and Robin. But you know what? You know what I was about to say? You know what soundtrack fucking slaps? The Batman 
and Robin soundtrack. <laughs> I ha- I would like as a child, I had that on a loop, and I would go back and forth between that and the Avita soundtrack. There was a Goo Goo Doll song on Batman and Robin that I can't remember right now, but I remember was. it being like a whole thing. There's a whole thing of like Batman Forever being like what feels like the first soundtrack that's part of like essentially marketing and merchandising for a movie because now it's just like it's just part of like the package for like every teen like franchise movie you have a soundtrack that has like you know it's essentially just a merchandising opportunity but at the same time the batman forever soundtrack kicks ass the notation on the wikipedia page by the way for the 95 uh golden globe nominations for hold me throw me kiss me kill me is that it was also a razzie nominee that year Fucking stupid. Fucking stupid. Fuck you, Razzies. We hate you, Razzies. The other precursor award, not precursor award, but uh, ancillary award that Brothers showed up in that year was the Teen Choice Awards, which... Because all the teens went to this movie. (laughs) So... Hello, fellow young people. Here is Brothers. So here's something very interesting. Oh, my God. Okay, so... I will give you the four non-winning nominees that year, and I want you to guess who won. It was Gyllenhaal and Tobey Maguire for Brothers, Jeremy Renner for The Hurt Locker, so they're all, you know, all our favorite teen faves from the Iraq War movies, Mm -hmm. Channing Tatum for Dear John, which is, isn't he also a soldier? I think so. I don't see those Nicholas Sparks movies. Yeah, he's a soldier who falls in love with Amanda Seyfried. So, okay, we've got a theme going here. five different movies. So, interestingly enough, the winner of this category, Choice Movie Actor Drama, is not playing a soldier in the movie, but it is a movie that involves the thing that would require all of these soldiers to... War, so it involves a war. Not not just a war, but it involves an inciting incident that would necessitate all of these people going to war. Like a bombing? Uh, 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 one might say, one might say an attack. (laughs) Is the film also an attack? Yes, but it's, the, the way it deploys this inciting incident is like the biggest attack of all. Oh, Jesus. Um. It is notorious for what happens in its final minutes. Oh, is this the um is this the Robert Pattinson movie that like the twist is that it's 9/11? Yeah. Yep, it is. <laughs> What's that movie called? It's called Remember Me. I shouldn't be laughing about that, but like that it, fucking no, movie. I remember when the first laughter. reviews happened for that movie and people were like, "What the fuck?" It deserves your derisive laughter 100% for sure. There is also, all right, I'm not going to get into every category at the Teen Choice Awards this year. I will say Sandra Bullock did win for the proposal for Fabulous Choice, choice. Actress well Romantic teams. Comedy. All right, so there was a category called Choice American Idol Alum. I will read you the four losers, and I'm going to challenge you to tell me who beat them. The four losers are Kelly Clarkson, Carrie Underwood, Jennifer Hudson, and Chris Daughtry. Who beat them that year? I mean, like... This is what was terrible what about wildly popular it's among some teens. Dumb man. Um, wildly popular among teens. I mean, I'm torn between um, Soul Patrol idiot and um, David Archuleta. Make your choice, my friend. David Archuleta. Yes, you are correct. David Archuleta. Yeah. Beats uh, Kelly Clarkson, Carrie Underwood, and Jennifer Hudson. David Archuleta. Jesus Christ. Okay. 
Teen Choice Awards. You're no, you are no AARP Movies for Grown Ups Awards. I will tell you that much. Do we want to do the IMDb game and cleanse all of this David Archuleta and Razzie nominations for Hold Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me out of our out of our minds? Uh, Yeah, I think that's a that's a good transition. Um, I am already on a good track record of guessing things. Yeah, you're on a hot streak, my friend. Um, okay, so the IMDb game, we end all of our episodes with this. We challenge each other to guess the top four titles listed under a performer's IMDb page as they're known for. Um, caveats being, we will mention if there is voiceover work, um, or we try to stay away from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Harry Potter, because those go straight to the top and they're boring. They um, gunk we also it all up. TV. Um, we give each other um, kind of just a guessing free for all but once we've gotten two wrong answers we give the film years just as to like keep it moving along yeah all Joseph, right. are you going first or am i going first? why don't i challenge you first mr perfect streak okay all right i think you could get this one too not, i'm not trying to raise expectations just to psych you out or anything but i think you could you could also go four for four on this so we talked earlier about Jim Sheridan and his Oscar-winning streak. We talked about specifically the boxer being the exception that proved the rule. That was Daniel Day-Lewis opposite Emily Watson. We have not talked very much about Emily Watson, but I chose for you Emily Watson. Um, okay, so Emily Watson. Um, this is going to be difficult. Um Oh, I'm just going to throw this out there because longtime listeners for us will know that my original IMDb game nemesis was Gosford Park, and Joe taunted me with that a million times. I'm going to guess that he's doing it again, and that Gosford Park is on there. You are correct. Yeah! <laughs> I am no longer foiled by Gosford Park. I really um, was hoping, and I didn't want to be mean, but I was really hoping you'd get hung up on Gosford Park again. Bitch. Um... Just because of Paul Thomas Anderson, I'm going to say Punch Drunk Love. Correct. She has two Oscar nominations, but fully nobody knows what Hillary and Jackie is. I'm not even sure I know what Hillary and Jackie is, so Breaking the Waves. Correct. Okay. You are three for three, you dick. See, the problem with Emily Watson is she's done a ton of like pre-teen family films like meant for like 10 year olds Uh uh-huh well it's no tv there are no tv movies on here no teen movies oh like not teen but like you know those movies that like their prime audience is sure 10 year olds um she's also in a lot of big ensembles where she's like the seventh lead or whatever which is where i think like billing matters in this game so i'm gonna say the water horse which is like the one i can think of where she's a mom um no it is not the water horse not the water horse okay Um, i'm just gonna throw in a freebie for you it's also not war horse and the fact that she was both in the water horse and war horse props and respect yeah Mm. i'm just gonna go with what is coming to my mind and say angela's ashes no, not Angel's Ashes. Okay, so now you get the year because you've gotten two strikes. Year is 2002. Which is the same year as Punch Drunk Love. Uh, yeah. Oh, 
Oh, she plays a former IMDb challenge for myself, the Joan Allen role in Red Dragon. She does. It is Red Dragon. Red Dragon Red shows Dragon. up in the IMDb game a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of famous people in that movie. A lot of famous people in that movie. Well done. Thanks. Well done, sir. All right. Thanks. I feel very I was going to have that. a lot of fun playing the guessing game with you about how it's directed by a reprehensible human being and <laughs> a whole lot of stuff. All right. Um, all right. Trash. Give to me. Okay. So uh, we're talking about a movie called Brothers. So I went the opposite route and was thinking of Sisters, specifically oh, no. for Carrie Mulligan, whose first movie she played famously, A Brood of Sisters, yes. in Pride and Prejudice. Am I thinking of Kira Knightley for you? No, I am not. Am I thinking of Rosamund Pike? No, I am not, because I believe we've already done Rosamund Pike on this. I am thinking about the forgotten Bennett sister, Jenna Malone. Of course you are. Of course you are. Do you know, remember how she got ca cast in The Hunger Games and I spent a year on Twitter bitching about how it was awful casting and then I saw the movie and I loved her and I wrote and like... she's great. And I wrote an apology article on the Atlantic Wire <laughs> being like, sorry, Jenna Malone. <laughs> and then she responded to it. That was the other thing where she's like, Whoa. I guess I forgive you. Um, all right, Jenna Malone. What is her like... Saved. No. No. Fuck off. Ah. Contact. Yes, contact. That was the thing that, that she first got not not uh, noticed for. Okay. I will um, say I thought that was going to be the one that would throw you off. Wait, is it Hunger Games Catching Fire? Hunger Games Catching Fire. All right. So it's Hunger Games Catching Fire. It's contact. It's somehow not saved. Um... Jenna Malone, Jenna Malone. Is it Pride and Prejudice? No. You do that a lot. Where you like mention the thing in your intro and then you're like, oh, I wonder what it could be. Wait, so that's See, two that's strikes. That's not a tactic. That's a tactic you think I have. Oh, I don't have that yeah. Tactic. Right. Okay. That's two strikes, by the way, so I get years. Uh, oh, okay. So you have 2015 and 2016. Which means no stepmom, which I was a little surprised by. A movie right. we should also talk about on this podcast. 2015 and 2016. Oh, um. Oh, no. Okay. She's. Oh. All right. Neon Demon. Yes, Neon Demon. I remember the Neon Demon was in loves Nick yeah. Reffin. Okay, so. She's legit good. And that was 2016, right? No, yes. 2000, it was. It was 2016. You're waiting on the 2015 movie. You're not going to be happy about this. No. Okay, now I'm trying to remember, because I feel like this movie I thought was 2014, but I don't, maybe now it's not. It's not. It's Inherent Vice. No. Fuck. Is that 2015, though, or was that 2014? I'm pretty sure that's 2014. Yeah, yeah. it's 2014. Okay. Nocturnal Animals. No, that was 2016. I'm telling you, you are going to be mad. I would have been mad at both Inherent Vice and Nocturnal Animals. Wait, I think is you're going to be mad for a different reason than you think. Is it another Hunger Games? Maybe. Is it Mockingjay Part 2? Yes, it's Mockingjay Part 2. Okay. All right. This is for Jenna Malone. Jenna Malone's great. She's great, but she keeps showing up in awful movies like Nocturnal Animals and Inherent Vice. 
and like this Emilio Estevez movie that played Toronto and like no one heard about it <gasps> called The Public. Right. Remember that. Oh, yeah. man. Remember how it had like four public screenings before it screened for the press. All right. Once again, Chris did perfect in the IMDb game and Joe did crappy. Three for four. I will be nice to you next week. Three for four is not that crappy also. No, this was a good one. That was a good one. And that is our episode on The Brothers. Brothers! Brudra. The Brudra. The Brodres. (coughs) Y'all, let's get some beers. Let's buy those brothers some beers. Let's buy you brothers some beers. That is the spinoff I want to see, is Meredith from Family Stone encountering the brothers from brothers <laughs> guys make it happen if you want more of this at oscar buzz you can check out the tumblr at this at oscarbuzz.tumblr.com you should also follow our twitter account at had underscore oscar underscore buzz chris where can the listeners find you and your stuff i'm also on twitter.com at chris v file that's f-e-i-l also letterbox at chris v file you can find me writing about soundtracks and things at thefilmexperience.net. Wonderful. Yeah. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I am on Letterboxd as Joe Reed as well. Entering the new year with newfound enthusiasm to be more of a record keeper. So we'll see how Letterboxd... I, every year I get to the end of the year and I'm like, what are my favorite things of the year? Well, let me go and see. Surely I made a list of all of the you know memorable TV episodes and movie things and of course no and it's chaos and it's every year every year i promise to do differently anyway we'd like to thank kyle cummings for his fantastic artwork and dave gonzalez and gavin mevius for their technical guidance please remember to rate and review us on itunes google play stitcher or wherever else you get podcasts a five-star review in particular really helps us out with itunes visibility so quit your intense glowering from across the dinner table already and drop us a rave review if you haven't Thank you all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Our listeners have sex all the time. <laughs> Everyone's a winner, baby. That's no lie. That's no lie. You never fail to satisfy. This song is for all of the parents. And also also the children. children.